Brothers and sisters, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. My name is Jacob Tews, and my family and I were part of the Riverwood family before we moved from Waverly to Hampton, Virginia last summer. It's a privilege to be with you today. We have the glorious opportunity to humble ourselves under the authority of God's Word together. This summer, as you've studied samples from the Bible's collection of songs called Psalms, you have no doubt uh, encountered many facets of our human experience expressed in these poems. Today's text is no different. Today, we're going to dig deeply into a psalm that addresses a challenging but absolutely vital aspect of our Christian walk. So will you take your copy of scripture and turn to Psalm 51 with me? I'll be reading from the ESV. <clears throat> As you may already know, many of the psalms have titles beyond just their numbers. The titles offer instructions to the musicians leading worship, or, as in this instance, information about the author and the context for its composition. Understanding context is so important when we study God's Word. So let's begin there. To the choir master, a psalm of David, when Nathan the prophet went to him after he had gone in to Bathsheba. First, the song was provided for the choirmaster, which tells us that it was meant to be used in public worship. The note that it is of David simply means that the author's name was David. This wasn't just any David, though. This was David, the king of Israel. Even if you only have a basic familiarity with the Bible, you have no doubt encountered the story we know as David and Goliath, where a young shepherd boy took down a giant, highly trained enemy soldier with just a stone and a sling, instantly turning the tide of a military confrontation. That's the same David. You can read all about his pretty remarkable life in First and Second Samuel, but most importantly, he served for 40 years as the king of Judah and then the whole kingdom of Israel, and was described by the Lord himself as a man after my heart who will do all my will. Sadly, though, amid all God's blessings on his life, there was a time when David fell into astonishing sin. And the account of that lowest point in his relationship to God is the context for this psalm. The story is alluded to here in the title as the time when Nathan the prophet went to him after David had gone into Bathsheba. So, how do we know this was David's lowest point? Well, in 1 Kings chapter 15, it's written that David did what was right in the eyes of the Lord and did not turn aside from anything that the Lord had commanded him all the days of his life except in the matter of Uriah the Hittite. The sin that forms the backdrop for Psalm 51 is here portrayed as, in essence, the lone blemish on David's otherwise impeccable record of obedience to and love for his God. 
the account of this sin is absolutely worth studying. So even though our primary text today is Psalm 51, and I, I don't want to accidentally preach from 2 Samuel, I think we do have to at least get an overview of the context for this psalm in order to fully understand it. So if you would, keep your finger in Psalms and hop back to 2 Samuel, nine books to your left. Here's the elevator version, the quick summary. So God has been showing favor to David and Israel because of God's covenant promises. He's been giving them military victories over their enemies. At the beginning of chapter 11 in 2 Samuel, we see David get complacent, which initially, on first reading, seems to be the tiny spark that soon set a blazing, consuming sin fire. But on closer inspection, there's a problem even earlier that sows the seeds for David's sin. I thought this was really interesting. If you read 2 Samuel chapter 5, verse 13, And David took more concubines and wives from Jerusalem. So David has already been living outside of the divine order of one man united to one woman in marriage. Staying home when he should have been with his army in battle was a fan to the flames of sin which had already been kindled by his embrace of something which was culturally accepted but was disobedient to his God. Once David has eschewed his God-given royal duty by remaining in Jerusalem, he's open to temptation and ends up committing adultery, a violation of God's seventh commandment. Now, boys and girls, when a man and woman get married, they make a promise to love only each other. Adultery means that David broke that promise, pretending that a woman named Bathsheba was his wife, even though she was actually married to another man named Uriah. And God hates that sin. The consequence for violating that commandment was death. How easily we can deceive ourselves. David was the man who asks rhetorically in Psalm 139, Where shall I flee from your presence? Implying that there is no place where God is not. And yet David thinks he has gotten away with this sin. But sin begins to find him out. A reckoning that starts with the revelation by Bathsheba that she is pregnant and David is the father, not Uriah, her husband. So what's David's response when he gets confronted with this sin? He does what all of us have also done at one time or another. He tries to hide it, piling sin upon sin. He tries one method which doesn't work, which makes him desperate, which leads to David having Uriah killed in battle. At that point, he takes Bathsheba to be his wife, and seems to have gotten away with the sin and the cover-up. As we learn, though, our omniscient, covenant-keeping God could not ignore the situation and works to restore the, the relationship with David, who is both God's beloved child and the leader and representative for God's chosen people. 
The last line of 2 Samuel chapter 11 is foreboding. But the thing that David had done displeased the Lord. In the next chapter, God sends the prophet Nathan to speak to David on God's behalf. Nathan confronts David with his sin, and God opens David's eyes and turns David's heart back toward him. David says immediately upon being confronted, I have sinned against the Lord. And Nathan, as God's prophet, declares, The Lord also has put away your sin. You shall not die. Remember this passage the next time you're meeting with an accountability partner. We have to bring God's word into the situation so that it's much harder to hide our sin. Now, arguably, David broke all ten commandments in the midst of this tragedy. It's a perfect example of what James describes in chapter 1 of his letter, starting in verse 14. But each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. Then desire, when it has conceived, gives birth to sin, and sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. So after all that, how can David's relationship with God be restored? Thankfully, we have more information than the brief account in 2 Samuel. We have David's full, impassioned plea to the Lord for reconciliation and renewal. And we can look to it as an example for our lives. As we already saw from the title of the psalm, it's not meant solely as David's personal statement of remorse and prayer for spiritual healing. Rather, it was designed for use in public worship. So it's intended to function as an expression of each of our individual needs for reconciliation with the Lord when we are convicted of sin. If we all have fallen short of keeping God's law perfectly, and we know from God's word that we have, then we are condemned by the words of the Apostle James. For whoever keeps the whole law but fails in one point has become guilty of all of it. We all need restoration of relationship with our Heavenly Father, and David, in Psalm 51, writing in response to being confronted with sin, gives us a beautiful pattern for how we might proceed when we fall short and God seeks out that restoration with us. Now, to be clear, this is not a template for earning salvation. We are saved through the work of God alone, which he does by his Spirit, according to the completed work of Jesus' atonement on the cross on our behalf. Don't forget that. This is, however, a picture of one vital facet of how to respond when we sin. What it looks like to be filled with the Spirit and walk with Him, as Paul describes in Ephesians 5 and Galatians 5. This essential Christian discipline is called repentance. The model for repentance which David presents has a few important elements woven throughout. We appeal to the Lord for mercy according to His character, acknowledging our inability to atone for our own sin. 
we agree with God's judgment of the wrongness of our actions and motives, confessing the truth of our sin. We ask God for restoration and renewed righteousness. We anticipate God's grace in our lives as evidence of His glory. And finally, we acclaim God for His work, knowing that it is He who completes it. Let's turn back to David's psalm now to explore it further. It begins, Have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love. According to your abundant mercy, blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. So notice where David begins. He has been confronted with his sin and he goes straight to God begging for mercy. He shows that he has the right view of sin here, one that we need to take to heart. If David was deserving in any way of exoneration, he would have pled for justice. Instead, though, he asks for mercy. Remember that when David asks for mercy, by definition he is asking for pardon from one who has full authority and justification to punish his sin. That's what mercy is. That's what David is seeking. In so doing, he's acknowledging God's perfect holiness and his own inability to bring anything to the table. He could have said, God, have mercy on me according to the lengthy catalog of good deeds that I have accumulated over a lifetime of serving you but he understands the reality of the completeness of his own inadequacy. So instead, he leans not on his own character, but on the unchanging character of his God. His God, who is also our God, it's the same God. That God does not fail to keep his promises. Listen to God describe his own covenant-keeping character through the pen of Hosea and I will betroth you to me forever. I will betroth you to me in righteousness and in justice, in steadfast love and in mercy. I will betroth you to me in faithfulness, and you shall know the Lord. And though these words were written in the context of God's covenant with Israel, Jesus, by his life, death, and resurrection, offers to all of us a new covenant by his blood, a right relationship with that same promise-keeping God through his sacrifice. Amazing. So what is our first response when we sin? Appeal to God for his mercy and cleansing based on his character as revealed in scripture. Don't wait until you clean up your act. And for sure, don't try to convince God that you've been mostly good and just slipped up that one time. Call on God's promise of mercy because of the blood of Jesus. Brothers and sisters, if you are in Christ, your sins have already been forgiven. They've already been forgiven. That work is finished. That's the beauty of the gospel. So we say, God, have mercy on me. Blot out my transgressions. Wash me. Cleanse me. 
and do it because of your steadfast love and abundant mercy for me in Jesus. The cleansing David seeks is one that he knows only the Lord can provide, one that is full and complete. The word translated here as blot out means to wholly erase. He is not simply asking for God to forget his sin, but to remove it completely from the record. And after appealing to the Lord, acknowledging his inability to atone for his own sin, where does David go next? Let's read on to find out. For I know my transgressions, and my sin is ever before me. Against you, you only have I sinned, and done what is evil in your sight, so that you may be justified in your words, and blameless in your judgment. Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin did my mother conceive me. Behold, you delight in truth in the inward being, and you teach me wisdom in the secret heart. This is something we know as confession. For many of you, that word, confession, is familiar, but even so, a closer look at the principle can be beneficial. After all, sometimes familiarity breeds complacency. And we don't want that. David first acknowledges his sin and the weight of it, the way that it has consumed him. Remember, it was perhaps a year or so after his original sin that he was confronted by Nathan. And it is safe to say that he did not just move on after the chaos of the sin and cover-up were behind him. From this verse... And from our own personal experiences, we can imagine David's torment. And it would seem that the impetus for his confession at the confrontation was this constant grief with which he had lived after his sin. You might find it curious that David doesn't name his sins specifically here. This is for two reasons. First, the psalm was meant for public worship, So David crafts a text that is applicable to everyone who wishes to confess and repent of their sin. And two, David is aware of the omniscience and omnipresence of God, and also has been confronted with his specific sins by Nathan. Essentially, he has no need to tell God something which God already knows, and which God has already told David. We we cannot ignore other instructions in Scripture to confess sin to one another, and there are certainly benefits to a more particular, thorough accounting with God. But here, David's not explicit. Instead, he moves right to confession, which means, the word confession, means to fully agree with something or someone. In this case, with God's law and the fact that David broke it. It is true that David's mistakes had serious consequences for others, but he understands rightly that his primary sin is against the Lord. It is God's law that he has broken. He acknowledges that his actions are evil in the sight of the Lord and proclaims that God is perfectly justified in bringing judgment upon him lest anyone question the righteousness of God when David experienced the consequences of his actions. 
in his contrition, he goes even further than his specific sin, admitting that his whole nature is stained by sin. David is not a righteous man who made a mistake, but rather David is a man who is inherently sinful, sinful from conception. David's sin was an expression of his true nature. Any apparent righteousness in his life had only been present by the grace of God. This is important when we understand ourselves, our true nature, as being sinful and apart from God. David was in just as much need of salvation as the worst scoundrel, and he agrees with God on this point, too, in verse 5. The next line can be read a few different ways that seem to be plausible and consistent with the situation. God's delight in inward truth and instruction and wisdom are part of God's character, so David confesses this truth, both in contrast to David's failings and in almost disbelief of how far short he has fallen. It's almost as though David is shaking his head, saying sadly, and similar to what God said to him through Nathan in 2 Samuel 12, Lord, You care about matters of the heart and took great pains to instruct me in your wisdom and your law. Yet despite these and so many other blessings, I failed. So taking David's psalm as a model, the elements of repentance in our life should include an appeal to the mercy of God according to his character and the confession of sin, a full agreement with God's perfect judgment of our failure to live up to his perfect standards. After we have that correct understanding of who God is and who we are in relation to him, then we can rightly come before him in prayer asking for restoration. Purge me with hyssop and I shall be clean. Wash me and I shall be whiter than snow. The cleansing with hyssop in the Old Testament, just as a historical note so that we have a full understanding of of the text here, this cleansing was a ritual one. So a person who was ritually, ceremonially unclean was sprinkled with water, blood, or both via the hyssop branch, which allowed for distance between the sinner and the priest who was clean thus making him ceremonially clean and restored to fellowship. That's David's desire. He wants that restoration to fellowship and worship. He wants to be made clean again, and he is fully aware that it is only the Lord who can wash him to make him whiter than snow, because his sins were like scarlet. He continues to pray in this manner in the next verses, asking for both cleansing and restoration, for the removal of sin, and the ability to live rightly and obediently before God. In verse 8, we see David suffering under the guilt of his sin and his need for that restoration. He says, Let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones that you have broken rejoice. He's contrasting the peace that God can give with the shame 
sorrow, and excruciating spiritual pain he had been experiencing because of his sin. In verse 9, David prays for God's mercy, asking him to turn away from his sin, and again, requesting that God completely expunge the record of all his failures. Then in verse 10, we see a shift, as now David's pleas are made with an eye toward the future. This is an important facet of repentance that we must not miss. Repentance is not simply a turning away from sin. It is also a turning toward righteousness. Repentance is the fleeing from disobedience and the pursuing of obedience that we read about in 2 Timothy 2.22. If your repentance is only the turning away from sin, it very easily becomes legalistic and joyless. And if your repentance is only the pursuit of righteousness, you will far too easily fall back into the same sin, or worse. 90 degree repentance is not true repentance. True repentance has to be 180 degrees, a turning away from and a turning toward. David shows us this first by asking God to go even a step further than what he did earlier. He requests not just cleansing from sin, but the creation of an entirely new heart. Notice how David continues to acknowledge his own inadequacy and his need for the Lord to be the sole source of restoration. He says, God, my heart isn't good, but occasionally stumbles into sin. My heart is sinful by nature, so I need you to not just clean the sinful heart, but give me an entirely new, clean one. This goes hand in hand with the Lord renewing a right spirit within him. David asks again for mercy in verses 11 and 12, knowing that he doesn't deserve it, but that it is in the character of his merciful God to provide it. He says, Lord, please do not remove me from your presence, for a day in your courts is better than a thousand elsewhere, if I can mix psalm authors there. He says, please, please don't remove me from your presence, and please don't remove your presence from me. He recognizes his dependence on God. He also knows that God can return to him the joy that once had had been part of his life when David lived in obedience, and he leans on the Lord to keep him from future sin. Once this principle of a forgiven future is established, David expounds on it, anticipating God's work in his life and the life of God's people. He says, in essence, because God is restoring my relationship with him, these are the things that can and will happen. We can expect the same in our lives, too. In verse 13, the restored believer is given the opportunity for kingdom work, being part of God's plan to rescue those who have gone astray. In verses 14 and 15, the restored believer is moved to songs and declarations of praise and thanksgiving to God, that God would receive the glory for the renewal. 
in verses 16 and 17. The restored believer understands more fully and is able to offer by the grace of God the sacrifice which is pleasing to the Lord, humility and contrition, which are foundational bases for repentance. Finally, in verses 18 and 19, the restored believer knows the freedom to assume again the role which God has planned for his life. So in this case, that means that David is is comfortable and confident in coming before God in intercessory prayer as the earthly head of God's covenant people. That barrier of sin has been removed and he's now able to intercede for his his people, his country again, as its leader. He looks to the Lord for protection and blessing for his kingdom, remaining consistent by leaning on the character of God as he does so. David fell into terrible sin, sin which threatened his relationship with God and which had ramifications far beyond that. This disobedience required reconciliation that only God could bring, which he did by the conviction of sin through his word. In response, David repented or turned away from his sin toward God's righteousness. This repentance was recorded in Psalm 51, which we've studied today. And we can understand Psalm 51 as a model for our own repentance. We appeal to God for mercy according to his character, acknowledging our inability to atone for our own sin. We agree with God's judgment of the wrongness of our actions and motives, confessing the truth of our sin. We ask God for restoration and renewed righteousness. We anticipate God's grace in our lives as evidence of his glory. And finally, throughout, we acclaim God for his work, knowing that it is he who completes it. As Paul describes at the end of Romans 7, I delight in the law of God in my inner being, but I see in my members another law waging war against the law of my mind and making me captive to the law of sin that dwells in my members. While we occupy these fleshly bodies on this earth, we will continue to wage war against our sin nature. Even as we grow in Christ, walking with the Spirit, we will not achieve perfect holiness this side of eternity. So it is vital that we learn the discipline of repentance. To continue to turn away from our sin, and throw ourselves on God's mercy in Christ should become a habitual act of obedience. This is the repentance that we need. Because that's the way that we find restored relationship with our Heavenly Father. We can know the joy-filled life of a beloved son or daughter of the King as we develop this pattern of humble reconciliation and do so based solely on the work that was finished at the cross. Because we know that there is, therefore, now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Thanks be to God for this indescribable gift that we have a Father 
who seeks to restore relationship with his wayward children. Brothers and sisters, commit to addressing sin like David modeled for us. Appeal, agree, ask, anticipate, acclaim, and find renewed fellowship with your God. Let's pray. Lord God, thank you for your word. Thank you for your love for us. Whatever you would have us learn and take from this passage, seal those words in our hearts today. Bring forth fruit in our lives according to your word. Anything that I've said that is not worthwhile, sweep it away so that only your truth remains. Lord, give us the courage to repent in this way. Give us the discipline to do so every time we sin so that our relationship with you is always vibrant, filled with joy, and lacking any barriers to fellowship. We love you and we thank you for offering us this, this forgiveness and this repentance. We know that it is, it is only by the blood of Jesus that any of it is possible. We're grateful for your death and your resurrection. Thank you for dying on our behalf that we could have a right relationship with you. We love you, Lord. We pray these things in the name of your Son and our Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen.